Well, good morning, everybody, everyone who is in person here and online. Um, thankful to be here, and we are going over our overall vision and plan for for 2022. And so uh, we didn't do this last year, and so we're excited to do this. But we're going to launch off of the the text that Lawrence um, skillfully worked through last week. And he, you know, there's three points that start the passage. One, God is our ultimate home and place of refuge. And regardless of where we find ourselves, we're never in a place of perfect protection, perfect safety, perfect security, but God is our ultimate hope. And coming from a man who really was homeless for for most of his life in a significant way, uh, that's a very strong statement. In In contrast to God's infinite nature, we as people are extremely finite. We are but a breath. We are but a wind. And we're short-lived and we are weak because it is God that brings an end to our lives as a consequence of our sin. The wages of sin is death, and that is where things are at. And God is the one that brought that about. And so those are the three big points that that move into the text that Deirdre read this morning. Uh, God is our ultimate home and place of refuge. In contrast, we as people are extremely short-lived and weak. And it's because God has brought his wrath upon us in punishment for our sin that, that causes our lives to be so short. And so we have two options at this point um, in terms of how we view our lives and how we're going to live it and what we're going to devote ourselves to. We can, we can run from God, that's an option, or we can respond like Moses did here in Psalm 90 and we can run towards him. Since he is our refuge, even though he is the one through his wrath that is bringing our lives to an end, which is what we deserve. Um, he is also our refuge. And Moses makes three requests that we really want to kind of uh, flesh out today in our, in our uh, presentation of our vision as a church and what we see ourselves doing here in 2022. So there are three things that Moses asks God for. First of all, he asks God for wisdom in that we would be able to live our lives in wisdom. And wisdom simply means skillfulness. And so it's really a prayer for uh, satisfaction in the work that we do, that we could do it well and then be satisfied in our work and know that at the end of our days, which are short-lived, we can look back and see that what we did was skillfully performed. Second, he boldly asks God for happiness. He recognizes that, jo- that, that life is full of affliction, full of trial, full of hardship, but he asks God that, that he would be glad all of his days, and if not all of his days, it seems to me that at least I'd like to be happy at least as many days as I am sad and afflicted. We can clearly see that, that his request is in the midst of the affliction and hardship that we face, I want to live my life skillfully. Lord God, I want to have some satisfaction with it at the end of days, and I want, to, I want to experience some happiness. And we know that throughout the wisdom literature, happiness is, is something that all men pursue, but, all, but, but God gives. The third thing is that our work would be established. 
I think this is really a request that in the end, at the end of our days, when we look back upon our work, we can see that it's skillfully done, we've been happy through it, and that we can leave some sort of a legacy, that our, that our work would not be as short-lived as we as people are. I see that those are the three big requests. And so you see him concluding the psalm by saying, show us your work, God. Show us your work. What are you doing, God? And then he has the prayer that our work would be established. So I think really what he's doing there is saying that, God, if you would show us what you're doing, which in Ecclesiastes says all people are searching out to know the end of all things but cannot discover it. They cannot discover really what it is that God is doing unless God reveals it to us. And so Moses is saying, God, reveal to us the work that you're doing that we could live our lives skillfully and do your work that our work would be established, that our work would have some legacy so that when our lives are, when we're gone, when we're dead, that there is something left. So we want to look today at what is it that God is doing and how do we align our lives to it so that when we are done with our short-lived lives, 70, maybe 80 years if we have strength, we can look back and see that we are satisfied with what we did because we did it skillfully, that we really had a life characterized by happiness, even in the midst of affliction, and that we are leaving some legacy for the generations behind and really for eternity. And so before I get into our specific uh, vision and plan, so everybody here in person should have a printed handout. If you are online, the PDF was posted earlier this morning uh, in, the, uh, in the same post that Lawrence had the link to view it on YouTube. So I'll let everybody kind of pull that up if you haven't. But I'm going to read through. I typically don't do this, but I actually, I'm a, I'm a better writer than I am a speaker. And everything that I want to say, I've written. Okay, so I'm going to read through it with, I hope, some sort of emphasis in in character, because everything in here is something that I think that we all as a church need to be um, really aware of and mindful of and paying attention to. So pages four and five, a prophetic vision for our time. So I am not saying that I'm a prophet. Okay, a prophetic vision is, is, we're looking at our world and our culture, and, and we're trying to see what the Word of God may say to it. That's really what a prophetic vision is. So this first section, societal upheaval. As we turn the corner from 2021 into 2022, we continue to be challenged by many forces. After more than 800,000 deaths in America from COVID by the end of 2021, there was some hope toward the end of the year that the ravages of the pandemic would decline. But Omicron has thwarted that hope, and some believe that it may bring about the greatest public health challenge of our lifetimes. The gridlock, conflict, and rage in our politics continue to reveal the deep divisions present within our country, divisions that if not overcome could very well be the birth pangs of a collapse of American democracy as we know it. 
Climate change and its effects on our daily lives continue to reveal themselves in extreme weather events, including tornadoes in Minnesota this past December, 16 of them, something that had never been recorded before. Crime is surging as the nation continues to be confronted with a growing wealth gap, the consequences of centuries of racism and slavery, and an incarceration rate that greatly exceeds any other country. Violent crime is up in all major metropolitan areas. Both center cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul tied or exceeded record number of homicides in 2021. And there were over 600 attempted or successful carjackings in the metro area in 2021, a crime that had never been tracked before due to its rarity. The culture wars around abortion, gender, and sexuality are at full steam, laying bare and revealing our incongruences about Americans' most sensitive and personal values. Amidst all of this uncertainty, the onslaught of all forms of media, customized to our own preferences, continues to inform us of how bad things are, of how groups of so-called evil people threaten our own values and way of life, and how we don't compare with the seemingly beautiful and uninterrupted lives of our friends and those who are more well-off than we are. These things and more have caused rates of anxiety and depression over the last two years to surge to about four times the rate prior to the pandemic. All of this has had a drastic effect on the church in America. The division and conflict that our country has experienced around race, politics, and the pandemic have spread into the church, causing many churches to split and as many as 40% of pastors to consider quitting the ministry this past year. Church participation rates have declined by around 40%, and it seems that this will be the new normal. Outside of the pandemic, none of these challenges are new. The conflicts and division around politics, race, crime, sexuality, and gender, and climate, among other things, are ongoing. Nor are the trends new that affect church participation. People have been leaving churches and organized religion for decades. What the pandemic has done is heighten our irritability, increased our anxiety, and fast-forwarded already existing trends. The future is now. As we think about being a church and engaging ministry in this new normal and in a world that increasingly feels more and more hostile toward biblical religion, we need to prepare ourselves for greater tension. Tension between remaining in the world, but not of it, and tension between the natural pull to distance ourselves from those who oppose us, but God has a call upon us to intentionally love strangers and enemies. So these are hard tensions that we face as a church. It seems that the challenge before us is most easily seen in the spheres of sexuality and gender. It was not that long ago that Democratic Presidents Clinton and Obama did not affirm the legitimacy of same-sex marriage. Now, not only is same-sex marriage accepted across society, but promoted, as well as gender fluidity and transgenderism. And to oppose these values is to be perceived as oppressive, illogical, and bigoted. 
And while it may seem that this may be the greatest challenge facing the church in the coming years, it is simply the fruit of developments that have been forming for hundreds of years in our collective mind. The public transformation of attitudes around sexuality and gender are symptoms of deeper changes in Americans' foundational values and beliefs about the meaning and purpose of life, the meaning of happiness, and what it means to be a self and a common people. For centuries, the broader societal assumptions that provided these foundations were essentially defined by biblical religion. But when the reality of God began to be more broadly questioned in the Enlightenment and eventually disregarded as mere sentiment in our modern era, the stage was set for not only the revolutions in gender and sexuality, but in all of our customs and institutions. Our culture is challenging the very notions of what it means to be a human being, what it means to be a family, what it means to be happy, what it means to be a people, and what it means to pursue a life worth living. Answers to these questions are fundamental to how we think about truth, government, politics, human rights, personhood, race, immigration, sex, family, justice, the good, and other foundational concepts. If we do not address these deeper concerns, and if we only confront and speak to the moral transgressions that we can observe, then we will not address the hearts of people and the deeper needs present in individuals and our culture. I was, I was significantly, I'm kind of breaking away here for a moment, obviously. I was significantly really rebuked on this very point by my own daughter and wife last week. I, I, there was a, there was a um, it was a story on public radio over the weekend. And I came home and I just, I was upset. And I, I don't know if it was because the programming around public radio these days seems to all have one or two main themes. Um, or if I was upset at, I mean, I think I was upset at, at the content, and I won't get into the specifics. And Amanda goes, you know, you know, Dad, I'm just, and, and I was expressing my anger and frustration. I really where things are at in culture to some way. And she goes, you know, Dad, I'm just, she was taken aback and she was kind of silent because I was in one of my usual states where nobody can really say anything for fear of uh, getting blasted. <laughs> and so Amanda was just kind of quiet. And I just, you know, Amanda, what are you thinking? She goes, well, I'm just not sure that that's the attitude to have as a Christian in our culture. All of the friends that I have are being challenged by the things that you're mad at right now. And it was really, you know, I, I, I preach it, I teach it, but we, like Martin Luther said, we have to continually battle our flesh. And it's very easy for us to see what's going on in the world and just start getting angry and feeling like we've got to oppose, confront in, a, in, in anger and violent and malicious ways. An overview of these philosophical and cultural shifts is thoroughly explained in Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which I strongly recommend. When he considers the ministry of the church in these times, he says this, all of these conditions, this all makes the task of the church extremely difficult at this point in time 
Because the framework for identity in a wider society is deep-rooted, powerful, and fundamentally antithetical to the kind of identity promoted as basic in the Bible. So what he's saying is a person's sense of self and how a self is supposed to engage the world around them, it it is almost exactly opposite of what the scriptures teach and promote. It will not be a sufficient or effective response to the challenges of the day simply to pass resolutions or adopt statements on isolated symptoms. The church has to address the matters that the sexual revolution and expressive individualism raise in a far more thoroughgoing fashion. And so as we think about moving forward as a church, he makes three suggestions towards this to meet the challenges. And these three suggestions closely align with the fundamentals we have affirmed really since the founding of Twin Cities Church. The first one, the foundations of the church should rest upon the gospel and teachings of Jesus Christ, not on personalities and aesthetics. Personalities and aesthetics appeal to the emotions and when followed up by truth and reasoning can transform hearts. But emotional appeal without the teachings of Jesus Christ will only continue to make things worse, make worse the growing cultural reliance upon aesthetics and feelings. Second, the church must be a community with deep and sincere relationships. As we form our sense of self from the people we are in relationship with, the church functioning as the family of God is essential to embodying the calling of God in our own lives. And number three, the church must grow in its appreciation of God's view of our physical embodiment and the physical world, not only to address the challenges against biblical religion, but also to affirm the importance of our bodies and the physical world and our calling to enjoy our bodies in the world that God has given to us. I preached a short series on sexuality in America in 2004, three years before we moved up here and started Twin Cities Church. And my thoughts about where America and Christianity, where America and Christianity were headed, based upon the same group of philosophers and thinkers, are the realities that we are seeing right now. These same ideas shaped our ministry philosophy as we planned for the founding of Twin Cities Church. I believe that it is for this very time, this very time, that God has birthed and shaped us. I actually think we're coming into the season that we were really called to. I heard some prominent Christian ministry leaders just this week say that the moment for the arguments and ideas that house church proponents have been pressing for the last 20 years is now. God has called us to be his people in this most challenging of seasons. The world not only needs us, but we need it to more fully know Christ and embody his calling upon our lives as we seek to love the world as he has loved it and gave his life for it. So that, I think, is what I believe we need to see is the context for our ministry. And I think we all see and understand it. I'm just trying to put some explanation and some reasoning and some history and some thought behind it. Because unless we do, we're really not going to be effective in ministry. So I want to highlight just a few things in our vision and plan. You have it there before you. You can read all the details. I'm going to highlight a few things. First on page six. This is a, this is a, 
a new, we've, we've focused on our mission. We haven't had a, a, a formal vision statement. And so we wanted to write a vision statement. A vision statement really just explains who we are. What do we look like? Well, we are a growing family of house churches for the good of the city. That's what we want to be. That's what we want to look like. And so you can see that the, the pieces of that are broke down there over the two pages, pages six and seven. We are a growing family. Okay, God has been, as we have looked, seen just even in the book of Genesis, God is growing a family. God is growing a kingdom. God is growing a nation. But, but we see in the, in the New Testament that the family is the local church. And we, as a local church, are connected to the global family of God's people. We are brothers and sisters with each other. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are children of God. These are not just metaphors. These are realities. So we are a growing family of house churches. If you've been in the church for very long, you know that this is a substantive part of of what we focus on. And we believe that not only was it a good model that you see in the book of Acts and in the the epistles in the New Testament, you see it for the first 300 years of the early church, and we think it's a great model today. And the model is exploding all over the world, especially in those places where meeting publicly in large numbers as a church is not so easy to do. And, it's, and, and we really selected the, to, to approach our model of meeting, focus on house churches for one primary reason. The New Testament and its instructions to Christians depend upon relationships that are really characterized as familial. And unless churches structure themselves in order to put people into contexts where relationships have to be formed, where needs can be expressed, where needs can be met, then we're really not going to function and perform what God has called us to as a local church. And then for the good of the city, the third part, we're not here for ourselves. God's promises to Abraham, as we have seen, is to bless him, but through him to bless the nations of the world, really to make the nations of the world happy. Happiness and gladness are very strong biblical concepts, and since one of the greatest, if not the greatest, philosophical question that philosophers have been thinking about for thousands of years is, is, human beings are here for the pursuit of happiness, how do we achieve it? God has answered that question. We are here to know and to follow God, and in that way, God makes us happy and strengthens us to bring happiness to others. And so the next pages, pages 8 and 9, really go st- begin to go through our mission. And that is something that we're more familiar with as a statement. We are doing the work, okay, to fulfill our vision. We are doing the work of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ through the Twin Cities and beyond by proclaiming the gospel, equipping households and leaders, and planting house churches that engage the city in love and good deeds. And so there's, there's six primary points to this, advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? The books of Luke and Acts, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, really are t- kind of telling the story about the purpose and plan of God. As we've already seen in the book of Genesis, the promise that God was making to humanity, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, 
uh, was all bound up in this promise that, that someday God would bring an offspring to woman who would conquer evil, conquer death, and bring life back to all of God's creation. That is the single most significant promise in the Bible, and what all of the Bible is, is connected to. And so the Gospel of Luke shows how Jesus Christ fulfilled that promise throughout the entire Old Testament. And then the book of Acts shows how the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how, we, how he is the promised child, how, how, how he has come to conquer evil and conquer death and showed us that he could do it by resurrecting from the dead. And that message is then spread throughout all of the nations. And the book of Acts ends open-ended. There's no conclusion. It's just that Paul continued to preach the gospel in Rome unhindered, and the Gentiles would listen. And so the next centuries of the church until Jesus returns is us filling in the story. And it will be concluded, just as the angel said at the beginning of the book of Acts, when Jesus returns, that's when it's done. So Jesus hasn't returned yet, so we are still filling out the story of the book of Acts, which is why the one of the networks that we're associated with, Acts 29, calls the name Acts 29. It's the rest of the story. And so that's what we are doing throughout the Twin Cities and beyond. Twin Cities is our sphere, but God will lead and provide opportunities and resources for us to bless others beyond the Twin Cities. And we proclaim the gospel through our Sunday morning services and then our variety of our forms that we do in, our, in house church and our personal lives and households. Uh, equipping household and households and leaders. So this is our efforts with classes and leadership development and house church leaders training and redemption group training. Planting house churches, okay? The early church preached the gospel, started churches, and they just continued to do that. And what we've seen in our history is that when we start new house churches, people come, people join. Relationships are developed and formed and utilized for the growth of the church and the expansion of the church. And then again, finally, at the end, as we continue to mature and grow uh, as a church, as individuals, as households, we are able then to serve others more effectively. So those are the six parts about our mission. And I'm not going to go into any of the details of those six things. You can read that throughout the, the document. Uh, but I do want to highlight um, the efforts in regard to house churches. So if you turn to pages 12 and 13. Turn to pages 12 and 13. There are two graphics there. One is a graphic of where our existing house churches are at, the top one, the little red circles with the white houses in them. Those are all of our existing house churches at this point. There are nine. In our heyday, we had 13. So due to some leaders just stepping back and taking breaks, which we encourage and, and we are uh, happy to support. And then we've had households, a number of households leave over the last two years. We're down to nine. Now, the challenge right now is that most of those nine are really full. Most of those nine are really full. And so you can see the second graphic, and this is only up to date through May of 2021. So there have been a number of households that have come into the church since then that we don't have on there. And then there are some households that, like the, the Evans family up in Zimmerman, that just would not fit on the map effectively. So anyway, you can see our households. 
What I want to point out, what we, one of the specific goals that we have as a church this year is to start two new house churches. We, we think that the areas around North Minneapolis or the northwest suburbs of Minneapolis is a prime spot, and also just north and northeast of, of the city of, of St. Paul. We think that these are two areas where we have households and where there is a need. Now, if you look on page 13, you can see that there are really four main factors to starting a new house church. We need a leading household. This is why we have our house church leaders training and then practicing these kinds of things, the kinds of skills needed in an existing house church before going out and starting to lead your own. So we need a strong leading household. We need a strong supporting household. We need a house that can host at least six households with children. And then number four, two to four additional households in the startup group. So if we have four households, in fact, if we have three households, I think we've started house churches with three households before. Um, in a geographic area that can form a startup group. So that's, that's what we're looking for in, in starting a house church. Now, one of the things that we're doing this year, and it's not that we haven't done this in the past, but w- this is going to be a strategic part of, of our efforts to start house churches. When a house church starts, Lawrence or I will come in for the first three to six months and just help provide some leadership and coaching until that house church is stabilized. I can remember one of the first house churches we sent off. I think it was Travis and Mallory and Micah and Nicole and I think uh, Emma at the time. We just sent them off. <laughs> and, and I don't think I even visited them. Um, and they grew, they grew, and by God's grace, uh, they've multiplied since then and, and have recently started the new, the new house church in Coon Rapids, but it was not a very good strategy for starting house churches, and I know that, that a lot of our house churches started that way, so uh, I, you know, for whatever it's worth, I apologize at this point, but we are repenting and changing our ways, and we're providing more support for those startup house churches. The other thing I want to point out here is our leadership structure. Um, and, I, and that's on page uh, 16. I'm pointing this out because um, increasingly, one of the things that I've noticed and observed and, and we read about, and obviously we can see in our culture, is just this um, increased suspicion around authority and institutions, right? I mean, that's part of the problems that we face as America. Um, I, I want to say just a few things. First of all, uh, the, the scriptures um, throughout both the Old and New Testaments put a lot of importance on the need for governance, okay, governance, so that, that people are, are cared for and shepherded and taught and instructed and at times corrected and admonished, okay? This is the, the work of, of those kinds of leaders are needed. We'll see in Exodus 18, when we go through Exodus here in the next uh, few months, um, that was an important part at the beginnings of the nation of Israel. Uh, Moses tried to judge the entire nation by himself, and his father-in-law saw and said, Moses, what in the world you are doing? You are wearing yourself out. You're going to wear out the people. You've got to break things down into groups of 10, groups of 50, groups of 100, and groups of 1,000. So you have some way of, of, of administering justice and overseeing your people with skill and effectiveness. And so 
God has established authorities in the world through, through governments, as ineffective as they are at times. They still exist for a purpose that he has given them. And he has, he has established authorities in the church. And so our leadership and authority structure, which is here again for protection, for uh, provision, for leading, and again, at times, correcting. So we have house church leaders. That's our base level of leadership in the church. And they're really doing the work of what the New Testament would describe as a deacon. They're doing some teaching. They're doing some counseling. They're doing some shepherding. But the real authority of the church lies in the team of elders, which is the second level. Um, for us, we also have a, have a ministry team. And the ministry team are, are, are the, the, the men and women that God has called with word gifts that really do a lot of the work of the ministry. And that team is made up of, of Lawrence and myself and Deirdre at this point. Um, and you can see us obviously bearing the greater roles and responsibilities for a lot of the work that we do to equip the church for works of service. That's really the function that we have is to equip the church for works of service. The church does the work of service in the world. The church does the work of ministry to the world around them in their schools and workplaces and neighborhoods. The staff of a church is just called to, to equip them for that, for that work. As I mentioned, the, the, we have a, our team of elders, which is Travis, Dykema, Tim Larson, Lawrence, Stacy Chance, and myself. And so that is really the, the biblically defined office of authority where they are responsible for protecting the teaching, they are responsible for teaching, they are responsible for the shepherding of the church. And so the elder team meets monthly and as needed. Uh, we actually met last night to pray over uh, a family that's in need. Um, and that's really where the biblical authority of the church rests. We also have a governance team, and the governance team is responsible. If you can think of kind of like uh, you see throughout the book of Acts and the epistles, uh, Paul had, had, a, had, had teams of, of co-workers that would go in and establish and set up churches and continue to, to strengthen and assist uh, elders of churches and at times bring correction to elders of churches. And so we have a governance team, that's what we call it. Um, and uh, there's no real term for it in the New Testament. And so that governance team is Lawrence and myself and Jeff Reitzema. And they also, that governance team also carries the legal and financial responsibilities of the church as well, which frees up the elders to engage really in the work of shepherding uh, the church. And so I just wanted to take a few moments to point that out so everybody's kind of clear on what the leadership structure of the church is about. Um, lastly, lastly, in regard to the plan... If you turn to page 17, there's a page there called, What is Your Role? And I want to read through this because, again, it, it's, it's, each of the points is very specific, and then there's nothing in it that I don't want to say. What is your role? So as you think about how can I, so if we ask the question, if an individual like Moses is asking the question, God, show us your works Please show us your works so that we can work alongside of your works. So if you go into that page asking that question, how, how can I participate in the work that God is doing through Twin Cities Church? So the living out of our faith is not a list to complete. When we follow Jesus, every aspect of our lives are affected. We can't be a great husband or father and remain insubordinate and lazy at work. 
for example. To follow Jesus is to strive towards righteousness and peace in all of life. This takes time and much effort. So the following is a recommended list of priorities. While Christianity is not a list of tasks to check off, we do become mature by first experiencing change in our hearts and minds, and then more aspects of our lives progressively reflect this inner change. The following set of priorities reflects this progression. First, number one, learn who, learn who you are in Christ. Join a house church and discover the love of God toward you, how he has placed his spirit inside of you, and how he has made you a part of his family and what he has called you to. You cannot become what you don't know. Consider participating in a redemption group. Learn to pray and ask God to deepen your understanding of him and of his calling on you. Learn what it means to be in Christ and to be transformed by the power of the Spirit, the Word, and the church, which are the three uh, like power centers in the book of Acts. Strive to follow what Christ has called you to in the spheres of responsibilities that you have, be they family, church, work, neighborhood, etc., This will reveal strengths and weaknesses in your own life and bring clarity to your calling. Number three, seek to meet the needs of people in your house, church, and spheres in the world. There are everyday needs of people all around us. Begin loving the people closest to you and see how Christ works in you to spread the gospel and strengthen others through you. Number four, grow in knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ and his purposes by growing in your understanding of the scriptures. Participate in the numerous opportunities at TCC, which are explained in this booklet, to study the Bible with others and grow in unity of mind and purpose with the church. Number five, enjoy the financial resources God has given you and also use them to meet the pressing needs in our city and in the mission of TCC. Watch and experience God's continued abundant provision in your life and the efforts you help with your generosity. So just a real quick note there and an update. So as of Saturday when I talked with Sylvia, uh, so our goal for December was to meet the $40,000 monthly budget and then to raise another 33,000 to kind of meet where uh, we were in the in the red for for 2021. So we met the $40,000 goal and another 27,000 was given towards the 33,000. So really really close and I would say Praise God for really answering that prayer and that need. Number six, pray and ask God what role you can serve in starting or supporting new house churches. Stretch yourself and enroll in some classes so that you can become more effective in teaching the scriptures and in helping others know and deepen in Jesus Christ. And finally, number seven, pray and ask God what role you can serve in service or leadership ministries at Twin Cities Church. God will reveal gifts and callings to you as you serve him in your current spheres. In your faithfulness, you may sense his leading to serve in ways you never considered. You know, I was talking with a friend doesn't know the Lord a week or so ago. He's been a friend for a number of years. And uh, we had met earlier. He just, last, last summer, last fall, and he just really had been expressing frustration uh, and dejection uh, after what he saw last January 6th. He and his family plan to move to Mexico in a few years. He's taking Spanish classes. So when we got together recently, I just kind of went from that conversation that we had had about him moving to Mexico, and I just asked him, what do you think about the kingdom of God? His dad was a pastor 
And so, and he majored in religion when he went to school. And so we talked a long time, a couple hours. Who's Jesus? Do you believe that he performed miracles? How do you, what do you believe about the Bible? He goes, are you trying to convert me, George? I said, no, not really. So that needs to be explained more. Um, can I send you a book? Anyway, it was, we had a, it was a good conversation. And toward the end, he made a comment. He says, you know, I really think the hope for our society is in the next generation. I go, really? I said, I don't think so. <laughs> He goes, well, why do you think that? I said, well, it doesn't have a clear sense of identity. It doesn't have a transcendent purpose. It doesn't reflect happiness or peace. Its relationships are a mess, and it's overwhelmed with anxiety and depression. And I said, that's not just my observations. That's the observations of secular and religious philosophers and scholars alike. And he goes, you know, I'd have to agree with that. I'd have to agree with that. You know, when Jesus was on earth, he said, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, for which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Then he says later, do, not believe that I am in the fa- do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. And this was then the promise of the Holy Spirit. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit, you can do these works. We all long for our work to mean something, to be happy, to be a legacy. These were Moses' requests. We all know in our hearts that those are our desires as well. Jesus, as a man, was no different But he knew that those things came from God, and he knew that to experience them, he would have to do the will of the Father. And God revealed his work to Jesus, and Jesus did his work through the Spirit that God gave him. And these are the same promises that God gives to us. God reveals his work to us through his word. We've laid out the basic framework here in our plan. God gives us his spirit. If we believe the gospel, he, has placed, he places the spirit upon us as a seal, a seal that will be there until we see Jesus Christ with a promise that we can do the same and even greater works. Jesus has gone before. Jesus has accomplished it. Jesus has given us his spirit for us to do it. And this is the only way that we're going to find satisfaction, joy, and a legacy just as Jesus did. It's not going to be in our time. It's not going to be in our government. It's not going to be in our world. And it's not going to be through the next generation. It's going to be through Jesus and the Spirit working in us to do the works of the Father. Now, before, so that's the plan. Now, what I want to do here is get really, really practical. All right, I'm going through this process myself. We as a family are going through this process. I've posted. It's called TCC Life Planning Tool. You probably have done something before. Something like this is in the house church leaders training. You have a handout. It's in your handout there. 
And so what I, what I would encourage, what I would encourage everybody to do as individuals and households is to kind of work through this. This is just the first part. Do this this week, and next week will be part two with some, a few more steps. So there are all these, we have these spheres of responsibility, and I have a list there, there on the, in the front of that page. Interestingly enough, I didn't put marriage down. It's supposed to be marriage slash children, so I, I don't know if that means I don't think about my marriage, or if my marriage is just so great it doesn't even cross my mind that it's something to work on. Anyway, um, so these are various spheres, and you may have other spheres, which is why that bottom one is other. Okay, so think through the spheres of your life, and then rate, how am I doing in this sphere? All right? I think most of us would like to really wholeheartedly follow Jesus and be faithful in all of the tasks and commit to his work and purposes, but there are typically a few areas of our life that are kind of holding us back. So I... Think through the spheres of responsibility that you have in life and then rank them. How well are you doing? And then work through that same list and say, what are the three or four that I'm going to work on this year? All right? What are the three or four? I have four down here. Identify the four that you're going to work on this year. And then I want you to write a vision statement. Okay? A vision statement in the present tense. And you write in the present tense... Um, as if it were already true, all right? So these are two of mine. I'm not going to read them. You can read them. So one of my spheres is self-development. Another one of my spheres is friendships and neighbors that uh, I want to work on this year. So I wrote these in the present sense, present tense, all right, as if it were already true, all right? So if you're trying to kind of bring some order to your life and and, and start working on things, because I think a lot of times we can just see, you know, all these things need work, all these things need focus, all these things need attention. But we get to the end of the year or whatever, and we're like, I'm not sure I've made improvement in any of these things. So we usually have to focus on a few things, all right? So that's a real kind of practical end to help with, with a tool that uh, will help everybody kind of just see, if I want to do the works of the Lord and participate in Twin Cities Church, what have I got to do to, to make my way towards that? So let me pray real quick, and then we'll have some, some Q&A. Lord God, I, I am overwhelmingly and abundantly thankful that you have revealed yourself to us through your word and through your spirit and through your creation. And that we can not only know you, but also your works and God, through your will and through your spirit to participate in those. God, we as a church long to be your church in these times to give you glory. And God, that we would be skillful and satisfied in our work. That we would be happy all of our days. And that the work that we engage in would be lasting work. Work that would leave an eternal legacy. In your son's name we pray. Amen.